Welcome to the New Books Network. Good morning, good evening, good night, NBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership. Personally, I'm fascinated by the story. Trust is an underrated weapon in the business landscape. I'm a really, really strong believer in learning by doing. What's the definition of success? You're trying to come up with an answer to the question. But go ahead, Richard. You could be right, but you're wrong. <laughs> good morning, good evening, good night, Entrepreneurship and Leadership channel listeners on the New Books Network. Today I'm here with uh, Kimon, my co-host, and our guest today is Sophie Edelman. And Sophie, I could introduce you, but you've got quite a varied CV, so maybe I'll do you the honor of letting you introduce yourself in the way you would to someone who, for some reason, had never even heard of you. That's very kind of you. I'm very happy to introduce myself. So I'm Sophie Edelman. I'm second time founder. Um, I wouldn't call myself a serial entrepreneur. Sometimes you get I get called a serial entrepreneur, but second time founder um, living in the UK. I, I founded a company previously called Multiverse, co-founded a company called Multiverse, um, which is building an outstanding alternative to university using the apprenticeship method. So we, we help young people access the world's best careers at some of the, the top companies and give them training through apprenticeships. Um, we were trying to build something that's as prestigious as the world's best universities without having to go down the academic route. And I continued that learning theme into my new company, which is very, very early. We're, we're only sort of three or four months into um, being live with the platform, um, and that's called The Garden. So we, we're building a community for the curious, place where people who just love to learn for that joy of learning can access the world's greatest minds and each other importantly so they can they can learn from leading academics all around the world and they can also um, talk to other people who are interested in the subjects that they're interested in so that's where I'm at I, I have two small children um, one who's five and a half and the other who's three and uh, I, I as I said I live in London and and I'm going to be moving to Germany later in the year as well. So, oh, very busy life right now. I've got a six and a four-year-old, so oh, I sympathize. I, I sympathize. I sympathize. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. actually you're in a you're in a you're in a workspace. Is that where your uh, is that where your your startup is, or is that just a workspace, or where are you? Because like, I have the problem. I had to come to the office because if I do a podcast with the six and the four-year-old at home. Like that's why I'm asking. Is like they're coming in. I mean, they'll, they're, no, they'll show. No, so I uh, I actually run a, a a remote team. So my company right now is remote first. We call it. Um, that was partly a function of the fact that we started it during lockdown. So we had to be remote. But we decided rather than being a company that was going to be hybrid, um, we wanted to be a company that was remote first. We come together for on sites at various you know, intervals of every week or every two weeks currently. Um, and it allows people to be a bit more flexible with their lives, but it still allows us to come together and have those creative moments, those brainstorming moments, those collaborative moments that I think are really important to an age stage company. So normally I work from home, um, but luckily I have a very tall house <laughs> and my office is right in the in the, the eaves of the, the house. So I stay far away from the children during, during the workday. I think we should bookmark Richard. This uh, I want to come back, but I know we have to. I, I know we have to dig in to understand and, and to learn more about Sophie. But and by the way, my daughter's name is Sophie, so it's really easy for me to remember your name. But uh, I think we should bookmark the culture because she just started to talk a little bit about. And I think it's a super interesting thing: is how do you? Because I find that one of the challenges actually is how do you 
how do you actually have a culture when you're, let's say, remote versus? But let's let, let's let's bookmark that for now, and yeah. uh, I'll let you uh, do your intro questions. How did you? Well, become- we 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 will come back to culture because culture is I define it as shared experiences, and if your shared experiences are online, that's a pretty <laughs> pretty different place than people have been historically. So one of the things we like to would like to know is about what it was in your upbringing, childhood, in terms of role models or school friends or inspirations that led you to be an entrepreneur now in terms of early life influences. And would your parents or your siblings be surprised to discover you're running a company now? Or were you the sort of the sort of kid who was always doing things on their own and sort of unconventional striking out on a different path? I'll answer your first question, did I have any role models? And the answer was no. And no one in my life, no one in my family, no one that I can remember until, I would say I was in my late 20s, ran a business or was an entrepreneur. Entrepreneurship wasn't even a word that I was familiar with probably until I was in my late teens. Um, my family are all doctors and nurses, um, got an engineer somewhere in there but but no one ran a company and um i was very academic at school i really loved studying i um i i think i thought i was going to go and eventually do a phd or something like that i didn't really know what i was going to do quite frankly um so no there was nothing in my early childhood that would have pointed me in that path and, and that's why i think it took me a long time to get to entrepreneurship so i was in my early 30s, uh, now, but I was in my early 30s when I first started working in the kind of startup space. And um, it was a couple of years later that I started my own company, Multiverse. Um, and then I've continued the trend. But I didn't really understand what it meant to build companies. I, I got the first taste of that actually working in, an, in a finance firm um, where we were building joint ventures and um, and other kind of businesses within the business and it was and my my boss was actually uh, an entrepreneur he was an entrepreneur who built finance companies and so that was my first taste of this idea of oh you could start something and build it and how exciting is it to like build something create something leave something in the world and so from there, I then went to work for somebody else's company um, in the startup space, a company called Hired.com, that was building a tech recruitment platform. I launched their UK business for them and built out the team. So sort of always felt like I had mm. experience of building a business kind of on somebody else's dime. And then once I scratched that itch, I was like, okay, now I want to go and build something myself. And, and it did it then. But uh, people, I think a lot of people say, oh, I had the lemonade store. Nothing like that, sadly. But, the, but to your second question, would people be surprised? Um, I think the answer is no, because my mum would always say that I was, uh, I'm a leader. Um, you know, I've always, sort of, probably she would have said I was quite bossy, um, but we don't use that word in my house because it's quite gendered. So um, I, I'd say I'm assertive. And um, I when I have an idea about what I want to do, I'm unstoppable. So. Um, I think I think that was a trend. I'll always, I'm always the one to corral the troops. I'm always the one who says, like, let's let's do it then. What are you going to do? I'll do this. You do that. Like, let's go on with it. Um, and then at university, I was um, my college president. So I like standing for positions where I can kind of get 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 stuff done. In fact, that was the phrase that 
sits under my name in my college yearbook. It says, there's, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll sort it. And so the, the uh, underlying message is, I like to get stuff done. And I think that's what being a, a founder is all about. It's about getting stuff done and creating something that doesn't exist in the world. Good. And were you competitive? And obviously your CV suggests, and you mentioned your academic, which is very much associated with individual, well, for some people, academic success is about being cleverer than everyone else in the class. It's not necessarily a profound thinker, but just someone who does better in exams in school and university than other people. And you had a fairly sort of elite type education. So were you competitive or did you sort of study for the love of studying or was it seeing your name at the top of the, the top of the list of results that motivated you? Oh, that's a difficult question. I am competitive. Um, I wasn't someone who particularly participated in team sports. Music was more my thing at school. I, I like studying. I like learning. I mean, that's been a thread throughout my life. And, you know, I think, Richard, you and I talked about the number of books that we both read. And, uh, and I'm, I'm always reading. I just love learning. So there was, there was an intrinsic reason for doing it. And that's actually something that I care a lot about this. The, the, the way that learning makes you feel and the confidence it gives you and the joy it gives you as well. But there's also an extrinsic motivation in, in this. I, I like doing well and I was good at exams. Uh, you're probably right. I, I may not have been the most original thinker, but I was good at passing exams. And so um, that that's sort of what motivated me. I like I like the recognition that it gave me from from teachers and uh, and my parents. So you're so more to it though than just being competitive or setting up the lemonade stand. I mean, as you said, I mean, I, I'm just trying to, yeah, I mean, just like taking it forward. Like, so you would, uh, whatever. So you were good at school, and then, I mean, obviously, you, you people were turning to you and counting on you. It sounds like people were counting on you, whatever, whether they were in groups or like you were the person people would turn to to get stuff done whether it was in study groups or I, I'm sure there was other situations. And then how did you like, sorry, what, uh, what did you actually uh, study at, uh, at university? I said geography. So okay, see, I love that. <laughs> I like learning about the world and people. Right. It's a pretty broad subject. It allows you to study for benefit. So, and then, so then like you graduated, I don't know what age you graduated at there, probably like 22, 23, and uh, you have this geography degree. And, and then what? And then what? Well, back in the day, because I'm so ancient now, um, there wasn't really such a thing as careers advice at university. I mean, I think basically you could go to this small room uh, down down by the down by the river, and they had some pretty old books and about law, consulting, and banking, and medicine. I basically you know, sort of something accounting. Um, and I didn't really want to do any of that. So I didn't really know what I would do. And then I got this opportunity. Um, I applied for a fellowship to go and study at Harvard for a year. So I, uh, I thought that sounded amazing. I didn't think I'd get it. And I managed to get it. So I went out to Harvard, having spent three years at Cambridge working very hard. And, and a lot of people say, oh, I didn't work, do any work at university. That's not me. I worked very hard. I, I spent a lot of time in the library. I worked very, very hard because actually when I started at university, I, I was quite a long way behind, I guess, a lot of the other students. Um, my, I went to a, a, a rural state school um, and 
I didn't, I didn't find it easy the first year uh, to, at university. I didn't, I didn't know how to write the essays. And there's actually, um, I don't know whether either of you read Steve Schwartzman's book about his career. A lot, of, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say the whole thing is amazing, but there is this story that he tells about when he went to university and he was basically failing out. He didn't go to a great school um, growing up, and he was basically failing out in his first year. And one of his professors took him aside and said, first of all, I'm going to teach you how to write, and then I'm going to teach you how to learn." And um, really, what he was saying is, "I'm going to tell you the answers, and you're just, but I'm going to teach you how to construct an essay." And then once you know how to construct an essay, I'm going to teach you how to think. I'm going to teach you how to learn. And and I think that was a little bit how it was for me in my first year. I didn't I didn't really know how to to do this thing um, because I'd never operated at that level. And this and so I had to work quite hard. So Cambridge was all about you know getting my head down and trying to pass these very difficult exams. And <laughs> um, Harvard was this opportunity to do what was a, a graduate fellowship. Most people do it as a bounce off to go and do a PhD or something. I took classes in everything. I took classes at the Kennedy School. I took a philosophy class. I took a French class. I did psychology. I did anything and everything that was interesting to me because there was no there was no degree at the end of it. It was you got a certificate of attendance. Um, and first of all, that was just what an opportunity. It's just insanely amazing to study from some of the world's greatest people, you know, minds and and have that um, access. But also, um, I got the opportunity to expand my worldview. Americans are always said to have this can-do attitude. And uh, I think that is even more prevalent at somewhere like Harvard, where literally people think they can change the world. I mean, it is a very privileged environment. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I was classmates with people whose parents were billionaires and people whose parents were you know, senators and this kind of thing. And this is all me from like a tiny village in Lincolnshire. Um, but that made me think, okay, well, if they have the confidence and think they can do it, maybe I can do it too. And it was the first time I had that feeling of, I could do more. Um, and that, that really set me up to do things. With what was the difference between... Uh... Just briefly, because this really isn't what, but we are going to probably talk about learning and education as well. But I'm just, I just can't help but ask, what's the difference? What was the difference between the Cambridge and Harvard? Like, how were they different? Work? Oh, so different. Um, so, in the British system, or at least in the, I can only really talk about the Cambridge system. Right? I, I don't know anything else. So, first of all, terms are very short. They're only eight weeks. They're very intense. So you. Um, you normally have one essay to do a week, and for each essay, you are given a reading list, a really long reading list with a bunch of books and a bunch of articles, at least in a humanities subject like geography. Um, I think also in some of the science subjects as well. And you are told, and you're given, at least in geography, you're given the title of the question for the essay. So um, modern postmodernism is the new modernism discussed, something like that, and then this is the reading list. And you were left completely to your own devices. So you would run off to try and find these books and articles in all the various libraries around the university. It was like scramble to try and find the various books. I mean, half the time you couldn't find them because somebody else got there first and like scrambled it, taking it out for a month and didn't return it. Um, and then you had to just go and construct this essay and you didn't really get that much help. And then you had to sit in a room called a supervision. Um, 
who sat in the room with the world's expert who'd set that essay question and discussed it with them, probably <laughs> more hungover. And it was terrifying, but it was actually also very incredible. And yeah. At Harvard and also <laughs> the other US institutions, when you started a course, you went and got this book of all the pieces of all the materials you needed to read for that course. Like it was spoon fed to you. It wasn't even like, it wasn't even the book. It was like these three pages in the book that you need to read. <laughs> and then everything was about um, submitting pieces of work. So it was, it, it, a lot of the time it wasn't even what grade you got. You just had to submit the work. And there was so much more focus on doing things together with other people in these sort of um, like study groups. And that was completely foreign to me because I basically had to yeah. do it before. So it was very, very different. Um, also in terms of breadth as well, because it, in the UK system, you specialise very early. And in the US system, you continue, continue to take math and uh, a language and yeah. English. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, in terms of that, I was sort of wondering how the teaching was. And that is actually very interesting because I think that the what you're describing uh, that you were doing in Cambridge gives you the opportunity to think on your feet. You have to like if you're in there with a the professor or whoever, you have to basically be able to like like you might be really like some people I can imagine could write something brilliant, but if they have to go and like talk it through with somebody, that's a massive, that's a huge difference. And um, so that's clearly a skill. And and but then on the flip side, this working in groups. This is, which is like which is something that basically is key to life basically <laughs> working in groups is the thing you're doing there so that's kind of really totally i'll just stop on that that I, I the point about the and i went through a, a sounds slightly more privileged version of schooling than sophie did but we were both at cambridge that it's so much to do with individual success you know in academic terms and in business, it's not about being better than everyone else in the room. In fact, there's a sort of commonplace saying that if you're if, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room because you really, the real skill is to get together with people who are, find people who are better than you, persuade them to work with you, and sort of hang in there, keeping them all happy and motivated. But I want to jump back a bit. You talked about how your mum thought you were a leader, um, and you, it also sounds like it's too gendered to say bossy being assertive isn't being bossy it just means being clear about what you want and how you're going to get there um but did that mean that you were actually sort of coordinating the work of other people like scouts or like voluntary groups i mean i'm just being an annoying sister and telling your telling your sisters or brothers what to do isn't isn't being a leader necessarily so how did it matter why did your mum say that do you think or were you a self-starter you would sort of go up and do stuff that other people weren't I'm definitely a self-starter. I, you know, if I have an idea, I'll go and I'll go and start it. Um, I, I think, I think I just sort of coordinate things. So, you know, for example, I had a job, you know, right from the age of sort of fourteen. Work, I'd, and I'd organise it myself. I'd get myself there. I'd work. Um, I've, of, I've, I've done lots of jobs. I've worked in factories. I've worked in um, nursing homes. I've worked in bars. You know, I've, done, I've always had that feeling of sort of wanting to be independent and, and having a job. And, and but you um, didn't refer, you didn't refer to that when you were talking about role models. And I, I, I see. So you, as you were working in a factory, you weren't sort of processing like I wonder what it's like to run this factory or no, you know. No. No, but I do think that there's a huge value in, and I actually recognize that as well, because I also was to some extent that way, showing up 
like showing up is so underrated. <laughs> like so many people just can't show up for something. And like, you know, and especially you're a teenager, you know, you've got lots of other things to do. So showing up and that's a, really, it's about discipline. I mean, that's that you're actually disciplined enough to do something. Um, so that is, a, I, I'd say that that's one of the things, Richard, that you're looking for of these little, <laughs> I, I mean, I think that's definitely one of those. And, and they're showing up, but also, I mean, we had one, uh, uh, person on our podcast and she had described how she came from a farming family somewhere in the midwest and she describes like didn't even know what she didn't i think she didn't know what a job was or something she wanted but she needed money and she wandered down the high street of just like handing in a resume at random just having the self-confidence to because yeah, it's a sales thing you're not selling a product you're effectively selling yourself in a sort of or you know you can do something useful so getting those jobs is a kind, I, I, particularly for people who are a bit younger listening to this, it's a type of entrepreneurship to go out and get yourself a job when you're a kid because sure. you know not everyone does. And if you do, you're doing stuff that wouldn't happen unless you took the initiative. I just say there's two parts to it. Because I think there's the talented people that get the job and don't show up. <laughs> <laughs> so I think my first company was an apprenticeship business, um, Multiverse you know, we, we work with a lot of young people and we found that a lot of the people we worked with, we'd, we'd match them to an opportunity, an incredible opportunity working for like an incredible company doing exactly what they wanted to do. And they wouldn't show up for the interview. And the excuse would, well, if we could get hold of them, the excuse would be, you know, my grandma was sick or my dog died, all these kind of excuses. And actually uh, what it came down to was confidence. And so a lot of what we had to work on with them was their confidence, their the feeling like they could actually do this and that, we believed in them and they weren't going to fall on their face because a lot of the young people that we were working with, and I, I wouldn't put myself, absolutely wouldn't put myself in that category, were like incredibly underprivileged and come from low socioeconomic backgrounds. And many of them didn't have the confidence. They hadn't been told they were going to be a success. And a lot of what we could do was support them on that journey. And then once they got to the interview, they did really well. And so you would expect it to be that they wouldn't perform the interview, but actually was getting to the interview that was the biggest thing. That's interesting. So, sorry, Richard, are you done with the because of, with the childhood? Because I sort of am curious how she. Yeah, exactly. We're this is we're really professional here, Sophie. We're like really just very systematic, and we're we're gonna we're gonna challenge you because I want to get to like the, you graduated, so you did Harvard, you have this geography degree, you have the uh, you have the experience of like yeah. studying all these wonderful things that you're interested in, which sounds like a wonderful thing to do, actually. Like, I want to learn all this stuff I want to just that I'm interested in at, at Harvard, of all places. And then, and then and then what? Well, then I actually had a place to do a master's um, and I decided I was done with education. I didn't want to go back to writing <laughs> essays and taking exams. And so I was a bit stuck because I landed back in London after this incredible year. and. Turned down, well, actually deferred this master's place um, at RC. I needed to get a job, and I didn't. All my friends were starting graduate schemes, so I, I missed the boat on that. And so I think I found a job um, in the back of a newspaper or in the back of Guardian or, or the Times or something when, when you know, before it was online. And the job that I applied to and got was at a company called Worldwide Business Research, um, which is a conference company. It's now part of IQPC. And I always point back to this. Like, people don't think this is my first job because they sort of they hear that I worked in banking. My first proper job was working in conferencing. And although I say, you know, 
the point where I really started to understand what entrepreneurship was and building companies was, was in my late 20s. Um, this was actually my first real experience of building a company because building a conference is like building a company. You, you get given a um, you get given a theme. So in this case, my first conference was defense, logistics, and procurement. And uh, I was told this company they launched it last year. It had done okay, and my job was to three x it in terms of um, revenue um, and attendance. And so, and, and then I was sent off to start planning it. And the thing about conferencing, and it's a really, really great uh, career to go down if you want to learn about entrepreneurship, because you are responsible as the conference producer for researching the topic, figuring out what the key themes are, and finding the right speakers. So a lot of research, a lot of speaking to people, a lot of sales, effectively. Then you have to work with a marketing team and you have to write the copy for them because they're not the experts on this. They're doing lots of conferences. So you've got to write the copy, learn how to do that. They then did for that time mostly direct marketing, so mail shots. Then you had a sponsorship team who would go and sell, but you had to tell them who would be the sponsors who might sponsor this conference. So, you know, all the procure, all the um, defense contractors and so on. Um, and then you had an events team that actually, you know, managed the venue and stuff, but you were the face of the conference. And so on the day you turn up, and in this case, we were working with defense organizations around the world. I managed to get two five-star generals uh, to join us, one from India, the Indian uh, Air Force. And again, that was all about persistence. It's like, right, I want to get a five-star general, where in the world? We've got an Indian five-star general, we've got a Chinese five-star general. I still have the... Um, the, the, the sort of medal that they gave me to, to thank me for inviting them to, to speak at this conference, they became their entourage. And it was a really, it was a really great success. And I think that was, um, that was my first taste of the idea of building a business. But because all my friends were in these high flying jobs and I was on, you know, 20 odd thousand a year at that point and struggling to, to buy soup for lunch. Um, I think my ego got the better of me. And so, I started to apply for the milk round of graduate jobs, and that's when I ended up going to banking. And I had a horrible time, and I always slightly regret that I didn't stay in conferencing for a little bit longer. Yeah, because that, well, first of all, that's like I would call it. Um, we can call it, you can call it different things, but it's like project management as well. It's like you have to yeah. just like. And but but that's really what entrepreneurship is as well, because you have to put on all these different hats, right? And like you can do this, you can do that, you can do the other thing. So then you jumped into finance, and like was that just like a boring like finance job? And was it and like is it, the idea was it's like this pays better? So was that was what, what was when you said the, the ego got better of you? Is that really what or like your friends are all in? Because I sort of experienced that as well. Like your friends are all like doing all this great stuff, and like what are you doing? Yeah, I think I thought that this was a prestigious job and it would yeah. take me places and, uh, you know, I'd end up being, you know, a big shot or something. Uh, yeah. I had no idea. I didn't know a single person who worked in banking. I mean, yeah. my parents actually would tell people I worked in a bank. Um, so they thought I was like, you know, teller or something. They didn't understand what I did either. I don't think I really understood what I did. I was working in sovereign, supernatural, and agency debt coverage, um, which... 
it's yeah, as that's as well. not very entrepreneurial. I think the environment. Did it? Did you? Uh, and and you just to say, and, 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 and for our non-British listeners, that for reasons that aren't entirely clear to me, it's perfectly feasible to do medieval history or Anglo-Saxon, Norse, and Celtic, and then two years later, you're working for a famous international investment bank, writing reports about debt, and you're just—it's ridiculous at one level. And you know, sort of many cultures, like the German culture, which which regard. It's a bit like being a brain surgeon without being a doctor. You know, they just think it's totally scandalous that someone who hasn't studied economics and finance is yeah. is collecting fees off global customers <laughs> for, when they're not qualified to do that. So this 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 was your story, and how long did you last in this environment? And sorry, are there any takeaways that you think our listeners should learn? Because this can happen to people. It probably happens to a lot of people in their life that they they're doing a job and they want their friends to be more impressed by their job, <laughs> get more money. At the end of the day, it's all about people, the people you work with. Um, I have friends who worked at, in, in, in banking who had an incredible time because of the people they worked with and those relationships have endured. I think I have some very good friends who are peers from that experience, but I was in a team that wasn't supportive. And, um, and so I do think that whenever you choose a job, it should be about the people that you're going to work with, the culture that you are working in, whether that works for you um, and what you're going to learn. And I don't think any of those things matter to me. And I joined banking in 2007. So <laughs> okay, so that took care of that. That was horrendous. I mean, I lost this. Um, I quit because I really, right. really hated the job. And um, but during that time, you know, the markets were crashing and people yeah. were getting fired all around me. So it wasn't. I wouldn't say I had the normal experience of that. And so did you, what happened next? Gosh, I have such a long interview. Keeman's a great interviewer. Let me give you the short history between leaving banking and sort of starting my first company. So the short version is um, after having a pretty brutal time in, in banking, I just wanted to work with nice people. I think I'd learned that lesson and uh, ended up, being encouraged to go to an interview for a recruitment firm called Iggy Gonzenda, which is an executive search firm. And they were looking for what they call their first pre-MBA associate. So, so, so somebody who could help the consultants with their, um, with their recruitment. And uh, it was an incredible experience. I mean, I think being so young and having the opportunity to sit down with CEOs and boards and understand how you assess talent understand how you think about building out leadership teams, learn how to interview really well. These are skills that have stayed with me all the way through my career. Um, I really enjoyed headhunting. In fact, I always say that I'm, you know, I'm a frustrated headhunter deep down. And, and there's, I think that being able to spot talent is one of the things that I'm really good at. So I don't think it was a wasted experience. It was a really great experience. And, and they actually encouraged me to go to business school. It's not something I'd ever considered doing before, but a lot of the people at Egon Zender had been to business school and they sort of said, well, you know, you should go off and do it and then you can come back, which I never did. Um, but I, I applied to business school and, um, and ended up getting into Stanford. And a bit like the experience at Harvard, it, it, it again, opened my mind a bit more. We all know that Stanford is... Uh, right in the heart of Silicon Valley. And again, this was my exposure to the startup scene, the tech scene, this, this buzz that you get when you're out. What, what year was this? 
This was 2010. 2010, I went out to. Okay, that's a good time. It was a great time. To buy to be there. You know, I remember sitting in um, Scoop Cafe and Steve Jobs walking past, and at this point he was quite ill. Um, and uh, you know, we'd, we'd have we'd have Meg Whitman giving talks on campus. I mean, we were so lucky to be exposed to some incredible people who were just there. I think business school for me was was a lot about um, about sort of starting to to figure out the, the sort of the tech scene and the startup scene and that kind of get shit done attitude was going to be where I was going to be happiest and um, obviously it's the network you build from that as well. That's exactly what I was going to say is that network, uh, but maybe just talk us through how you you know how you got where you went from there, but like and then how valuable. That was because that because that that's I, I imagine that Stanford network was quite. The Stanford dumb. network is interesting because at the time you know we're all just kids, right? Um, right. So no one's actually that useful when you first leave this school. Ten right. years later, we're exactly. A ten-year reunion. We've got you know the CEO of New Bank in Brazil, and we've got <laughs> partners at some of the big investment firms. So yes, there is there is an incredible network that comes from that. But they are your friends. They you know they, right bond with them because you all have this desire to change the world and Stanford GSB the business school has this motto um that's on this stone in the middle of the business school and it it it, it so in the middle of the business school there's a stone that says dedicated to the people who um uh I can't remember I'll have to tell you I'll have to find the quote for you but the, the motto of business school is change lives change organizations change the world and that motto is definitely something that I live by. It, it, I really have drunk that Kool-Aid that like my purpose is to try and change to change lives, change organizations, change the world. Um, it's a very special thing. And then what? <laughs> no, you're, you're giving us the short. <laughs> you're giving us the short form, yeah. Because <laughs> and I think that the the takeaway here is that people's lives are not linear. I mean, you do get people who come out of school and start a company and 10 years later, they're, you know, you know, they're ruled in the world. But most people have pretty messy lives and careers and they do lots of different things and they do things for different reasons. So I came from back from business school and I came back to London because my now husband, who I was dating all the way through business school, was in London. People make decisions that are based on personal reasons as well as professional reasons. I've had plenty of friends over the years who've you know, move back home because they've got a sick parent or they've taken time out because they they were sick and, and sometimes you forget that we have these like life ups and downs and so I came back um, at that point 2012 there wasn't really much of a startup scene in London so um, the opportunity to go into a tech startup wasn't really on the radar and I had this huge debt from business school that I needed to pay off and so I went back into finance um, for, for my sins. And I, but I went to work for a firm called RIT Capital, which was which is an investment trust. Um, and I worked for one of the most impressive individuals um, in the world, a, a guy called Jacob Rothschild. And um, Jacob had built um, this investment firm. And he's a prestigious investor. Uh, and he he's a great business builder. And it was very hard working for Jacob. Um, because he has very high expectations and he makes very you know, big decisions about many things. But I learned so much working from him. And I remember when I first met him, I was totally a bit more than these guys, a legend. 
Um, I met him and I said, he said, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to build companies. And I said, come build companies with us. And that's what could have got me in. But a lot of what we were doing was building investment firms. And um, whilst I really loved it, I knew that I wanted to go and build. What did you actually do? I'm very curious about this. What were you actually doing? Like, what were, what were you trying? Yeah. What, how- we did things like we, we set up a, a joint venture to... Um, to seed hedge funds. So new hedge fund managers who had an idea, an investment thesis, they, you know, they need to raise capital and we could seed them um, and help them raise funds. And so in and of itself, it's an investment firm, but actually you have to create the structure around it. You have to a business plan, you have to figure out the financials, you have to find the people, you have to set them up to success. You know, that, that, there was a lot of business building in that. Um, we also had access to a number of organizations that were building businesses um, and they wanted us to be involved. And so we got in early, early doors, whether that was a kind of corporate finance advisory firm um, to help them build that. So it was kind of strategic investment rather than, um, rather than sort of pure play investing. That definitely seems like it's some uh, good experience for, you're really collecting, you're collecting the experience at this point, I mean, like just going along, you're collecting a lot of good stuff, basically. I think for for uh, when we get to your first start, yeah. and, and, and just to check, I, I heard that correctly. Is while you were doing that, you were thinking, "This is now. This is something that I want to do one day or soon." Right? That's when it really hit you. And was it a bit of a shock? For, was it kind of alarming? Because it's quite, you know, it's it's much less secure thing and if you can work for Unilever you can be very I don't want to criticize big corporations into implicitly a lot of people do but you can be a very entrepreneurial person in a big private or public company but you have the umbrella and the cushion and the you know the liquidity and it's is going out on your own is a much more scary thing and did it did it sort of dawn on you that this was going to be a bit more a bit more alarming to do your own thing definitely and that's why the first thing I did was go be the first person on the ground for a, for a startup that already existed. So it was it was a very deliberate decision to go and kind of learn how to build a business on somebody else's dime and be that first boots on the ground in a new market. I, I was seeing friends of mine at that time be Uber launchers. You know, the, when Uber was starting in sort of 2010, a lot of my business school class went to work for Uber and they would fly around the world and like land in Stockholm or something and and um, and like set up the business. And so I was seeing that and thinking, oh, something like that would work for me. I, I'd be good at that. I'm good at like getting getting stuff done. And so the job I hired was literally a sales job. I mean, I call it a GM, but it didn't start off as a GM. It started off a sales role. So most of the team were in San Francisco. And my job was to go and find people who wanted to hire software engineers um, and get them to start using our platform to hire software engineers and then work with a talent team to sort of work the other side of the marketplace. It was a facilitated marketplace in many ways to start with. And um, and I learned a huge amount. Like I, I learned about managing teams, I learned about um, you know how to think about uh, KPIs, how to you know, how to push sales teams. I had I learned a lot of sales skills, more formalized sales skills during that. And it also took the risk out of it. You know, it wasn't my company. So I think a lot of people will think that you're not, you don't have a high risk tolerance. You, um, you're not an entrepreneur. I think people's risk tolerance has changed during their life. And sometimes you, um, you grew up in a pretty risk averse environment like I did. 
and you know train yourself to be risk averse by getting all these you know, credentials on your CV, collect these badges because that provides you with the security net. And then over time, you start to realize that that doesn't matter anymore. Maybe you've built enough that you don't need anymore and your risk tolerance changes. And I think that was the point where I went to work for a no-name company and yet I could still build something and build a reputation. And that kind of gave me that confidence to be like, okay, now, now I'm ready. Now I feel like I can, I can do this. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of wisdom in that. And it's not binary. A lot of people, you know, people think, oh, you're either an entrepreneur and you never, ever work for anyone else or or you do, you, you, you're just a corporate slave or whatever. And it's not like that in reality. And you mentioned leaders, you learned about managing people and you mentioned you were involved in sales. And is, is it like one thing for about leadership and one thing about sales that you think that you, maybe an insight that you've got that might not be insights that other people have or something that you don't think gets enough attention in terms of how to lead people or manage people? Start with that one. Can I start with the sales one? Because that's Yeah, of course you can. Yes, you may. <laughs> A lot of people think that sales is about telling your story. Let me tell you why my product is amazing. And actually, sales is not about telling your story. Sales is about understanding that person's problems. So when I when I do sales, I start by really spending a lot of time getting that person to introduce themselves. What do they do? What are their objectives? Let me really understand what so what do you need to achieve here? What are the pain points? What are the challenges you face? What about the other teams in your business? Do they agree? Who are you working with? But I want to understand that business because a lot of sales isn't about me then presenting the solution. It's about me saying, you've told me this, you've told me this is your issue, you've told me this is what you need to achieve, you've told me that these are the these are the people who make, need to make the decisions. And let me use that information to help you. Like my job is to help you. And many times in sales, you should walk away and say, <coughs> you told me this, we're not the right solution for you. So if you have that information, you're going to get to a much quicker yes because you're actually providing something of value. People will pay for something that they value. And if you know what they value, what they need, then it's going to be an easier sale. Too many people, yeah. I think there's too much of this, like, you know, inverted pyramid. What's yeah, it? yeah, yeah. Because I know exactly. What, I mean, I, I feel very strongly. I am actually very much into sales as well. And it's like, nobody cares about you. Let's be honest. Everybody cares about me. Let's talk about me. That's what I want to talk about. I don't want to talk about you. I don't care about you. You talk about me. And that's ultimately, that's like the ultimate like essence of what I think what you're, what you're trying to say is like, I have my problems and like, what are you going to do about my problems? Because you come in with your cutter, cookie cutter, whatever thing. And it's like, I don't care if that just doesn't do anything. Yeah. So, and, and, and unfortunately a lot of salespeople don't, I mean, that sounds so simple. We sit here and we nod our heads, but how many, like, it still happens all the time. I mean, it's like all the time, so. I get cold emails from people every yeah. week. You know, they send me an email saying, let me tell you about my company and why you should buy my product. <laughs> Who cares? And, and sometimes I actually respond and say, you've probably checked out my CV and you know that I actually work in this space. So please don't try and sell me this product. Yeah. My suggestion is that you do your research before you send, and, and send a targeted email. Send an email that explains to me why I'm the person that you should speak to and, and why it's going to be valuable for me. I went on a brilliant sales training about 15 years ago when I was running, in fact, a company, Kimon and I, and Kimon's the majority shareholder, I'm a minority that was doing consulting and having worked in consulting just after university, they never taught me anything about sales. I was too junior, but there was this incredible sales training by a company called Top Consultant. I don't know if they still exist, but this um, very sort of squat, 
short, unglamorous looking trainer just took us through the basics of um, so well, when you walk into the room, you are not allowed to get a laptop out. You know, leave your laptop in your bag just as you walk in and say, look, I really appreciate you must be busy. So thank you so much for giving me the time. I've got a presentation uh, with some ideas based on what I saw on your website. But before I even go to that, just tell me why you agreed to this meeting in the first place. Um, and then we'll take it from there. And then she said, and then you just shut the fuck up. <laughs> you know, and, you know, this is yeah. so funny, Richard. It's hilarious because like when I was CEO and like when the company was smaller and I used to go and like, uh, let's call them more junior. They're not in the company anymore more junior salespeople, whatever, but literally the salesperson would be taking the laptop out to do the presentation. And I would be like, just like, and like they felt extraordinarily uncomfortable if they couldn't do the presentation. And I'm like, this is a hugely successful, like I've managed to do this meeting uh, thanks to basically I was there and I was just like, no, just no. And I was just like, and I managed to do the meeting without the, without the laptop. And so that's a successful meeting. I mean, but it's incredible, really. It's actually incredible that, that, that that's not, it feels so normal, like, like obvious, but it's, it's, Somehow, but, but, you know, never and, uh, take a deck to a meeting. Never take a deck to a meeting. I, yeah. And I think there's so many salespeople that use decks as crutches. In order it's a to crutch, exactly. exactly. It's a crutch, and then they go, and then they. I have my presentation. I have my. <laughs> you're right. You shouldn't you, have it. You're not allowed to take your laptop to the meeting. That's a way better meeting. I mean. No, I think we're all on the same page. And this, this is so important. And, you know, sometimes people say, oh, I, I, you know, I'm a product guy. I don't like sales. If you don't like sales, you probably shouldn't be in a business because that means that you don't have the ability, you don't, you don't have one of the key business skills, which is to get other people to buy whatever it is, to want to buy, you know, whatever it is that you've got for sales. And if you're, so, so I, I think that, so thank you for sharing that. And, and, you know, there's plenty of stuff you can find out about B2B sales, including good, good stuff. But I think if, uh, so, has qualified herself as a, a world a world class B two B sales salesperson with that answer. Um, what about managing other people? Because like, I, I think your answer was so good on the first question that I've now got extremely high expectations for your answer on the second one. I have no idea what you're going to say. Oh gosh, no, you raised the bar. Um, so. I think I've learned a lot about managing people. It's still an evolving journey. I wouldn't say I'm the world's best manager by any any stretch, but I think that what I have learned along the way is that obviously everyone needs to be managed differently. And the best thing you can do is sort of stand with them and share, I think, your own kind of vulnerabilities and, and your own sort of concerns, bring them kind of into a circle of trust. When I first started managing, I, I think I started I kept a wall up, you know, I didn't tell them about anything about my lives, my, my life. Um, I didn't, I sort of was permanently like on um, and I didn't really share when I was having bad days. I, I seemed to be quite bulletproof and they wanted to know more about me. They wanted me to sort of let down my guard. And when I started to do that, my relationships were much stronger. I felt far more um, loyalty. And I think that that kind of empathy and authenticity is is very very powerful. I, I know it's I know it's a buzzword authenticity now, but but actually people want to know a real person and they work for a real person. They don't want to work for a robot. So I think that's something that I try and do now. Sometimes I feel I go too far. I'm like too open and honest. Um, but you know, as a founder at least. You don't know the answers. In fact, most of the time, you have no idea what the right answer is. And, and the way I think about it is, I don't have the answer to the question. Opinions are equal. Everyone in this team 
will have an opinion. Some people will know more than others. So if they know more and they have like data to back it up, then data wins. But in the absence of data, when all opinions are equal, we could spend hours, you know, arguing about opinions. So in that situation, like I, for efficiency's sake, sometimes I'll make a decision. It might not be the right decision, but I'll make a decision. Now, I'm only doing that so we can move forward. But if you can provide data to, to prove that wrong, please do. Like, that would be wonderful. If I don't have to make a single decision, then we are in a brilliant situation. So I think that's, that's something I've, I've learned over time. To, to be honest, but I just took a chance. And uh, we're all trying our best to figure it out. Mm -hmm. It certainly makes makes sense. I, I now feel pressured to rate your answer. I've set myself up, that, which doesn't sound very. Just let go. Just let go. Let's just let it go. Let it go. <laughs> Let's just, just move. Move. Just, move, just moving on. <laughs> and so, so you built up. Uh, you built up the UK operations for this American company, based also in recruitment. So you were headhunting as type of recruitment. Obviously, then this is a recruitment platform. And uh, at what stage were you sort of thinking? No, because so, so it was kind of your own thing, but not really your own thing. Um, and then, when did you? Well, how, take us through the key the key moments when you decided you need to move on, and how quickly did you do that? Well, there are two things that made me move on. One was when you build up a team and you build up a business, and it's not actually your. Um, at a certain point, you start to become frustrated, often with decision making um, in, from from leadership and. Um, I think I was starting to question some of the decisions that would be made. So I think that was a push factor. There was another factor, which was I actually had um, a baby, yeah. uh, my first child. Um, while I was, I, had, I took a few months off maternity leave. And um, when I came back, it, I'd sort of been mulling on it. And I thought, you know, now's the time. Most people would say that is not the time to start. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm a bit mental like that. So at a five month old, I decided to to uh, join my co-founder you and um, uh, what was at that time White Hat and now Multiple. So when you had a five-month-old um, son, daughter? Daughter, yeah. When you had a five-month-old daughter, you decided that that was the time when you are going to do first-time founding? Is this, am I getting yeah, it right? Yeah, that's right. That's, and, and then, that's, <laughs> I just want to make sure I got it right. Okay. I decided to do my second one with the one-year-old. Yeah. Um, imagine, imagine people driving off the highway as they're listening to this. <laughs> so, what? <laughs> Car crashes. Yeah. So, hard. like, what was the impetus? I mean, okay, you've, you've explained the impetus to not do what you were doing, whatever. You took a break and you thought about it and it was probably, like, I, would, I would put that in the maybe satisfaction whatever yeah. bucket but you know there, there has to be more of a an impetus other than dissatisfaction um, so it's, so, it's been growing for a while you know this, yeah. this feeling of wanting to build something i mean it, yeah. i think it, it has started sort of when i was out in california the desire to, to want to build something and, and be able to drive the direction and then some of the maybe the frustration um were just sort of making me really really want to do it see whether or not i could could do something amazing and then when i met you and um, we met actually before I left um, Hired, and he'd, um, he'd sort of been working on this idea uh, for how we could build to build a, a new apprenticeship business. There was an opportunity, legislative um, door that opened in the UK, and you know he had this vision. Um, so Ewan had the idea for, for White Hat, and then started working on it. And when I joined him, um, we sort of 
we could come together and, and take that idea of let's build an apprenticeship business to let's build an outstanding alternative to university and really change the entire system. And I think that, um, you know, that meeting was very important because I had a lot of the skills that we needed to sort of operationalize this idea. And Ewan absolutely had like the vision and a lot of charisma and connections. He was also a great salesperson. And I think the two of us together really like amplified that opportunity and we were, we, I mean, we were a great team. Um, I, I, how did I, you I, take it? How big did you get it? What can you just tell us just a little bit before we get to the current thing? Well, how did you? How did you? So um, the business was founded in, in 2016, and um, we raised uh, four rounds of funding. Now, um, most recent round was 140 million dollars, um, so around 200 million dollars of total funding has been raised. Um, the business is now 500 people in the UK, wow. US, working with some of the world's biggest companies um, and you know thousands of both young people and people who are further on in the career who are also doing friendships in are you still a shareholder or are you I still, am. I'm, still yeah. I'm still a shareholder um, very much and um, uh, I'll always be a co-founder um, but mm -hmm. I decided to step back about 18 months ago because I wanted to start something new and you and continues to be the CEO and lead that business. I stepped down. Okay, now, can, now I'm really curious, and if you don't feel comfortable sharing, I'm not going to ask about money or anything like that, but I'm just curious how, because this is just curious how it works. Like, I assume you got, did in one of these rounds, did you get some kind of a partial exit that allowed you, or did you, or you just said, no, I'm just leaving it here. I'm leaving it all here and I'm going off and doing my own thing. How does it, I'm just curious, how does it, like, how did you, how does yeah, it work? So, I think, um, I think there's a, I don't think it's a good idea for founders to take money off the table in the first, you know, in the early stages of business. But founders generally underpay themselves. Like I always joke that I right. take that in every single job that I've ever taken. Yeah, exactly. As a founder, and so there does come a point where maybe in the third round or the fourth round of funding, exactly, you can. I think it, you're justified to take a little bit of um, money, and it's probably the smart thing to do as well to de-risk yourself. At the it's first. a hedge. Yeah, it's a hedge. It's a hedge. Mm -hmm. And so the majority of my shareholding remains in the business, but I have taken a little bit off, and that allows me to. To, to live my life and to pay for childcare to, to continue right. to build businesses. So, well, no, no, I was thinking, yeah, for the next thing, like I, you need some money to, I mean, it's easier. Obviously, you can do everything without money, but it's easier when you have, it's much easier when you have money. So, yeah, so that's why I was. It's, it's, also, possible, it's also, also possible to make bigger mistakes if you're self funded as well, because you don't get that scrutiny. <laughs> very true. That's very true. Um, so, 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 yes. So, this and, and in terms of, and we we won't spend too much time on this, but I think it's important for our listeners to understand. Obviously, you raised a bucket load of capital. I think you said two hundred million dollars. But how was it making money? What, what, what it was it like a fee for each apprentice from these big companies? So you'd like have a hundred people going to wherever Unilever or whatever, and they'd pay you a, a million pounds. Or what? What was where was the money coming from in terms of the real business? Well, for a long time, we were like it was a it was a lot of hard graft. So. It wasn't a case that we were getting in the early days, you know, the million million pound deals I think they are doing now. Um, and the team there is phenomenal. Um, so I, I, you know, take my hat off to them. They've done incredible things. So um, the the way that we made money was two ways. One was um, we did charge a placement fee for when it helped match uh, offences to opportunities. But that wasn't where the majority of our revenue came from. The majority of our revenue came from delivering apprenticeship training to the company and, and that 
was partly funded in the UK at least by uh, the company's apprenticeship levy, which is part of money that was available only for training apprentices. And in the US, it's um, you know it's a different it's a different structure. So we were paid throughout the duration of the apprenticeship. It wasn't like please deliver this training. Here's some money. Go off and do it. We would only get paid if we delivered high quality training throughout the course of the apprenticeship, and the apprentice remained on the program. So. The, it was a pretty regulated um, operation, and I'm really, really proud that the team was able to achieve Ofsted outstanding. It's, it's actually an education. Um, it's actually an education business and regulated by Ofsted. And uh, after preparing for it for years and years and years, we finally got inspected, and they achieved um, Ofsted outstanding last year. So it shows the quality of the training that the team. So basically part of the corporate training budget of companies, you've just muted yourself, Sophie, so you might want to, yeah, um, part of the corporate tra training budget of employers was landing in your bank account, basically. Yeah. Okay, got it. Okay. Um, and then, I don't know, is there anything more to ask about this, Kimon, or should we move on to the business? No, Sophie? let's focus on the, let's focus on where you're at now and uh, the exciting stuff you're doing now. So you, you, you had took some money off the table, you were ready for your next thing, and that was the CEO was the CEO of the visionary, and you felt that base. I mean, maybe you don't want to talk about it, but was it like you, you actually wanted to be the CEO <laughs> for the next thing? Or Well, no, yeah, let's start it. Are you the founder? Like, is it, are you the only, are you the sole founder? Or? I have a co-founder. Um, okay. So actually, this is a really important point to, to make. So when people choose co-founders, um, you know, I, I sort of, you and I sort of chose each other, but I think, you know, it was it was a chance meeting in some ways that, that led to that. We weren't both seeking out a co-founder. I think I thought I was going to start a business on my own. Um, and I met Ewan. And our, our skill sets were quite complementary, which meant in the early days, the first few years, actually, it was a bit like having two of yourself. You know, if if I could go to a meeting, Ewan could go. If Ewan could go to a meeting, I could go. We both were good at recruitment. We both were good at speaking to investors. We, we could do a lot of the same things. And that was a multiplier effect. But as you start hiring senior members of the team who have specialist areas, then that multiplier effect starts to wane. And you have, you know, Ewan's been the CEO all the way through. I was running a lot of the day-to-day uh, -day of the business. Um, but as we started hiring those senior executives, I could see that my role was probably going to become a kind of COO, which I didn't really want to do, uh, or it's going to become like a special project, other floating co-founder. And so it just felt like the right time for me to say, the team's in a really amazing place, and you can see that with, with what they've done over the last 18 months. It's time for me to decide to do something new. And I did want to be a CEO of a company. So uh, I think I'm, sometimes women feel a little embarrassed to say they want to be the boss and I wanted to be the CEO of a company and, and there wasn't going to be that opportunity at White Hat, which is more multiverse, which is the right thing, you and the CEO. Um, so I decided to step back and I stayed on the board for a year, stepped off when I started the garden. So after that, the, one of the investors that invested in multiverse, Index Ventures, invited me to come and be an entrepreneur in residence with them. Um, so I did that for six months. And started. What does that mean? Just so we, well, in fact, I don't even know. So, but yeah, so sure. the listeners may not know, but I don't know as well. So entrepreneur in residence is a was a wonderful opportunity. It means different things at different venture capital firms. <clears throat> not all firms have it. It's not a requirement. But basically, it meant that they wanted me to to help them with some of the portfolio companies that they had, with some of the investments they were looking at, where special expertise. And they also wanted me to think about like what I wanted to do next. You know, it was an opportunity for me to, to decide if I wanted to build again. Uh, there was no pressure. Um, it was just an opportunity for me to 
take a time out and, and figure out what I wanted to do next and be hopefully useful during that time, which I know you'll have to ask them if I was, uh, but it was great. But from their perspective, I think strategically, it was also like, okay, we've got this um, talented person that's going to do something next. And I want to have first, and I don't know if they did get first dibs. I'm just get on being on investing in the next thing. But like from that perspective, it's not a bad move. Yeah, I think, I think there's, there's always reasons like that. Yeah. So. Usually towards the end, we ask people for recommendations of other entrepreneurs, but it's just, it's, I'll say it now, that just uh, not, not now, but it's, please make a mental note that if there are people from those days who you think would be potentially interesting for our listeners, you know, oh. the people basically, they need to be, somewhat successful you know when we, we are someone who's built something on their own or something very interesting it doesn't have to be massive scale but we're looking for people who've successfully got something interesting off the ground um and if it's doing very well that's all to the good um so what's the where did the idea of the garden come from and what is it imagine that we don't know sure <laughs> so the idea for the garden came about because i just love learning um i'm always i'm always during the lockdowns, I realized that people were spending a lot of their time that they, they had, you know, this free time that was coming up learning. Um, and obviously a lot of the offline things that were happening moved online. And a lot of people who hadn't really been exposed to online um, learning were starting to do more of it. But there was this really interesting stat I, I found, which was 200 million people outside of China signed up to online learning courses, these MOOCs, um, online learning courses but only 3% ever finish a course. And what that tells you is that there is this huge desire to learn, but that, that something's there's not being served. Like they don't actually want to do a course. They don't want to become you know, a physicist. What they want to do is learn like why the world exists or you know, they want to understand what a black hole is, but they don't really want to go further. And I think that's why you see this rising popularity of things like documentaries and podcasts. And when I started thinking about that, I was like, well, yeah, everyone loves to learn. My parents love to learn. I love to learn. I'm always reading books. I'm always listening to things. Um, I'm sure your listeners fall into this category of very curious minds. And I think that the curiosity is something that's very intrinsic to humans. And when you have got children, they're always asking why. They love to learn. But they wouldn't call it learning. They're just curious about the world. And I think a lot of us have started to confuse learning with education. And we're all scared and bored of education. But actually, curiosity is... Is kind of learning for joy. It's about just scratching that itch. And that was sort of part of the, the idea for the garden. And, and really what it came down to was I read this book about this Greek philosopher called Epicurus. And Epicurus, um, I'm not going to give you the 101 on his philosophy. There's some interesting stuff in there. He believed the purpose of life's pleasure. But we need a longer time to talk about that. What was interesting to me about Epicurus was um, he had this place outside Athens, a physical place that he brought people together in. So it was, a, it was a garden outside Athens, walled garden, and it was called the garden. And it was a place where people came together to eat and to drink and to uh, discuss ideas and hear from the great teachers. And it was kind of a convivial community of learning, a convivial community of curiosity. Um, and at a time when society was incredibly stratified, you know, we had three rich men and then everyone else. This is a community that welcomed everyone. So it didn't matter whether you were a slave or a woman or a rich man, you were welcome in the garden. And I thought, we need that. Why do we not have a modern version of the garden, a convivial community of learning 
brings people together, where people can participate, where anyone's welcome, where they can learn from the great teachers. And that's where sort of the idea was born to regarding. So what we do is we bring world, the world's greatest minds, academics, other experts, out of the institutions and into your home. It allows people to watch live talks and conversations and to participate, to ask questions to these world experts, to have them answered in real time, looks like Netflix quality, um, and to participate in conversations with other members. And, and that's what we're, we're trying to build with the garden. That's awesome. I'm a big, uh, I mean, lots of things are coming to my head, actually, because I'm a big, Rich, this is an area where Richard and I talk a lot and are a bit, so I think we're both proponents of education. Like, sorry, we think there's a lot that can be done with education, basically. Um, and like, I personally just like, I absolutely like to learn random stuff, <laughs> like literally mm -hmm. random stuff mm -hmm. that's not like, it's not just in any bucket. So, I mean, but like, so did, I mean, so this business basically, I mean, I assume it's just going to become, or like the goal is it's sort of going to be a subscription, like you like ultimately you'd be subscribing to the service, to whatever it is. And then like, there'd be regular talks and then you're on the talk. It's, you have an interactive element. Um, right. Is there any limit to the, like, um, because I guess always in these situations you have like, you'd have to limit the, do you have to limit the number of people or do you have a premium level that they can ask? Because if you have too many people, then everybody can't ask questions or does that, so the way that wait, I mean, right now we have um, we're about five thousand members, so it's not it's not a huge community uh, yet. Right. We only started a few months ago, so it's grown pretty fast in that time. But still, yeah, that's like, amazing. Uh, um, we run about three to four live talks a week currently, um, and um, they 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 primarily fall into two buckets. We have what I call topical talks. So we don't these are not news talks, but we take a topic that is currently relevant topical so right now we're, we've got a talk this week coming up on uh, the psychology of a dictator so understanding the mind of a dictator obviously oh, that's useful that's very timely <laughs> very timely but it's not newsy we're not looking at it from the point of view of like what's going to happen next it's actually looking back and saying what we learn from psychology what we learn from history to understand how people become dictators who can become a dictator what you know what, what is it in the psychology of a nation that allows somebody to become a dictator what lessons can we learn from that? So we, we, we bring these experts, the world experts, to talk about that. Um, and um, at the moment, you know, we we have a few hundred people turning up to each live talk and then people can watch on demand. But the way we've built it allows for community involvement in deciding which questions get asked. So you're right, anyone can ask a question, but the best questions rise to the top because they're voted up by the community. Ah, so there's a whole, uh, okay, there, and, and so it's, it's an app. It's like an app yeah, uh, that's uh, okay. Okay. So how do I sign up for this thing? Where? Where? <laughs> what's it? Go ahead. I would love you to. to it's well. What's so? It's uh, is, is it? Uh, what's the website like? Where's the? Where do you sign you up? Uh, www.onegarden.com. So that's okay. one garden. Okay, onegarden.com. One we'll make sure we put that in the show notes. Currently free for founding members, so you can sign up right now, and um, you can watch some of the on-demand videos. They they are videos. They're not. Uh, there's nothing sort of particularly exciting other than you get to listen to these incredible experts. And do they have the question? Do they is have, have they been recorded versions where there's the interactive questions that are? You, so you can um, you can listen to the questions that other people have asked. Okay. 
And then we're going to be creating circles around each of the talks as well. So people can actually share articles and their opinions and start to have conversations about the topic. And you've got, I mean, and, and I, I guess, um, and we could go into the weeds of, you know, your strategic options and how you certify people and how you curate it and how you choose the topics and whether you're going to partner with universities. And I, I, when I spoke to you a few weeks ago, you said, you know, it's quite early stage. There's a lot of decisions you haven't taken, you know, you're still iterating and sort of finding, finding things out. But, are, you know, in that context, are the things that you and your co-founder are sure about that you definitely are going to do this, or we're, we're not going to be that because some kind of your sort of what do people say your north star? I've heard people say that. I've never quite yeah. known. It's not a, it's a phrase I grew up with, but I've heard it quite a lot with because they haven't been addressing it to you, Richard. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> no, no one cares about my north star. That's why <laughs> now I know. <laughs> Well, I think, so, so we, we describe the garden as community for the curious, um, and that really resonates with people. People are very excited about being part of something that's around curiosity and learning for joy. And when you think about a community, what makes a community? Engagement makes a community. So our North Star is engagement. We want people to be coming back, to be participating, to feel that they are contributing and that they are valued. And so we look at, we really look at metrics that, that focus on engagement, whether it's weekly active users, monthly active users. Um, we look at talk time, how long people stay. I think it's 98% of people who attend one of our live talks stay for the entire talk. Um, and then 85% stay for the full kind of Q&A. So people are not dropping off, they're staying, they're, they're you know, immersed in that experience, they love it. I mean, the feedback is incredible. So I think the um, that's what we focus on in terms of our North Star. But the, the, the sort of thesis with the garden is that learning today is is isolating it is boring it can be stressful it can be um, hard to, to find like high quality content whether that's you know visually or audibly in a high quality but also not always knowing whether that person is high quality whether or not they, they truly have expertise there's so many people who stand up in soapboxes and social media now and proclaim to be experts right I don't pretend to be an expert in anything, um, so I'm I'm very much a jack of all trades, and um, I think it sometimes is difficult to know who's a true expert. And so what we've done is focus very much on academics. Um, that doesn't mean we won't go into other forms of expertise, but the expertise people who've been working in an area, studying a subject for years and years and years, and not only can talk about one specific issue but have the depth of insight to be able to bring out the fascinating details. I mean, if you watch some of these talks, some of the questions that these, um, some of our fellows are asked in the Q&A, and it's live Q&A, they don't have any time to think about it or go and look up the answer. Some of the questions are very difficult, very you know, specific um, and, and quite challenging. And our academics can just answer it straight off the cuff because they have the detail at their fingertips. And that true expertise, access to that true expertise is just, you know, profoundly valuable thing and academics these days are not valued in the way they should be experts are valued in the way they should be and we need access to them and i think channeling that is a very powerful thing for society because we can give people anywhere access to these experts and we start to help people think critically and help people start to have constructive conversations and that can be that we can actually start to change the, the way that the fabric of society operates so the two things I've, I've picked up is there's the community aspect of it. That you want you want learning to be a community activity, not just an isolated activity, and you want to have really 
good quality experts delivering your 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 talks or workshops and we had one of the most popular podcasts we've ever had on the show was interviewing a guy called david spinks who wrote a book called the business of community and um he, he founded the community of community managers and it, it might be worth a listen he, he was quite he's an interesting he, uh, his book his book is very good but, oh, you've got the book yeah, it's a very, very sort of checklisty. But the check, he made some mistakes about TED and TEDx. So I'm a TEDx. He said that TEDx is a reward and get get a financial reward, which we don't. But generally speaking, I thought it would be extremely useful. And you've just confirmed it is. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And um, you know, I'm sure that after your podcast has been online for a few months, you'll be absolutely number one, Sophie. But for now, <laughs> you've got to catch up with catch up with David. Um, and it, suppose it goes really well, and it, you know. You you suppose like in five or ten years time we bump into each other and you uh, say how's 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 the garden going and you say it's amazing we're doing x y and z what would be the sort of things that make you looking in a few years time say this really was the right decision what would be what would be an overwhelming success for you no i, I care about impact of scale i, I want us to, to change the world if we can and i think the two ways that we could change the world with the garden is allowing you know, millions of people around the world to learn from your experts. I've been incredibly privileged to be able to access some of these people at some of the top universities around the world. Most people never get to them. And that is a real shame. Um, and I, I hope by doing that, we can start to allow some of the knowledge that's out there and the brilliance that's out there to be out in the world and also to, to start those conversations. So that would be a wonderful thing if we could have millions of people who are engaged in the garden to part of this community and access these up. But the second thing that I think would be wonderful is if we had you know, hundreds of thousands of these incredible fellows whose work has been elevated, who've been able to impact, you know, create impact through their work, um, through sharing it in the garden, who feel valued um, and have their work celebrated, and that more people are therefore encouraged to go into research and academia as a result of seeing that the profession has been elevated. Because I think right now academics feel beaten down, you know, they're, they're in the UK right now, we're seeing this whole thing about pensions um, being reduced, and a lot of people are leaving academia. And ultimately, you know, the the progress we make in society is going to be is partly, not fully, but at least partly, driven by the amount of insight and knowledge and new learnings that we create. And I think it would be a shame if we lost um, the academic angle on that front. So, 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 so scale and impact and value uh, to the, you'd like you to get it to a really big scale and you'd like that to be changing the lives of the people who attend or show up or are part of it and you'd like academics to be more valued and could you carry on doing this for the rest of your working life or do you think you might like in five or ten years time say I've done this now, and there's there are, there are some other things I'd like to. I, mean, I know it may be, it may be a question you just can't answer, but do you, do you, do you think this could be a forever type job, or is it too early to say? I think it's always too early to say. You never know what's coming around the corner. I know that what I love is that I want this to exist in the world, and it absolutely aligns with who I am and what I value. And I think if you have those two things, then you know it's something you can keep going up for a very very long time. You never sign up to start up. Um, life unless you're willing to go at this things for a very very long time but you just don't know what's going to happen um, you don't know what's going to happen in your, your personal life you don't know what's going to happen in your professional life you don't know what's going to happen in the world I mean there's the macro thing it is, is part of it but 
I really hope this is something that can become a huge success and that people um, want to ex continue to exist. So and as, hopefully for as long as it does, I can be part of it in some way. Hmm. And um, obviously, with your other companies seeming to do very, very well, can you imagine investing in other startups, being an angel investor and things like that in parallel to what you're doing, or do you want to focus on one thing? So I already do angel invest. Um, I did quite a lot uh, while, you know, over, over the sort of six, eight months before I started Garden after, after stepping back from Multiverse because I had a bit more time. And, and I love helping other founders. I'm always trying as much as I can to, to be able to help the companies I invest in. For me, angel investing is not something I do from an investment point of view. I do it because I want to support founders. And the best way for me to do that is to, to, to focus the number of companies I help because I have really limited time. I'm running a company and I've got small children. So I barely have a life outside that. Um, and um, so with angel investing, it's about picking a few people that I really feel I can help, whether that's through you know, helping them connect with investors, whether that's helping them think about hiring, whether that's helping them think through some of their strategic decisions, whether that's just being a shoulder to cry on. But I, I'm you know, quite deliberate about that. So I'm not, I'm not a very active angel investor. Would I become a more active angel investor in the future? I, maybe if, if you know, maybe when the garden is much further on, but I just don't have the time now to do it a lot but i do love helping other founders hmm. so well I mean, it sounds to me that if our listeners hear that and you start getting a tidal wave of, of proposals to invest from people you don't have time for then that's probably you're not encouraging but, but i guess it's just a case-by-case -case thing if, if a really great idea popped up on your radar that you liked and you thought you could help with you you wouldn't say no but you do seem like you've got quite a lot on at the moment <laughs> yes rather a lot on right now um, is there anything about you that we haven't asked that you think our listeners ought to know or any ideas you haven't had the time to share just by you know, with our brilliant interviewing skills who may not have asked all the person perfect questions? I think you've asked excellent questions. Um, I, I can't think of anything. Um, I, have, I, have, I have a question. Uh, I have just two questions actually that I've been saving. One. So, I'm a big fan of education. Let's just say this this whole topic. So you literally went to the basically the best schools you could probably name anywhere, and so how helpful was that? And actually, to make you who you are today. I mean, would you say that? I mean, and like, if you could just remove the connections piece, because that's the one I'd like to remove, and the actual like what you learned at school versus because you also had this extensive like real life. Um, part <laughs> where you actually learned a lot in actually working for other people and you know is it just it got your foot in the door to those other things is that or did you actually learn stuff like the, the quality of what you actually learned at these prestigious best in institutions how valuable has it been for you I don't remember much of what I learned um, in terms of the actual knowledge but what I did learn was how to learn and how to construct arguments and how to write really well, which it, are all skills that I still use every single day. To your point earlier, I learned a lot about how to be self-sufficient, um, you know, to, to pull something together on my own, not to be spoon-fed. I think at, at Harvard, I really learned about, um, I, I, I broadened my, my sort of learning um, and, 
I sort of a lot of confidence. I don't think I learned anything at Harvard that I applied today. Stanford was more useful because we did actually learn specific things that were really valuable in those particular class at Stanford GSB called uh, interpersonal dynamics, otherwise known as touchy-feely, which is mm -hmm. a little bit like group therapy. Basically, it's all about how do you build good interpersonal relationships. And some of the skills you learn really do help you with your teams okay. and careers, but actually also helps you in your personal relationships. Yeah, I imagine. Feedback and um, very, very powerful. So people always say that, at least with business school, that it's not... Most of what you learn at business school isn't particularly valuable for the first five, six, seven years. I actually think I refer back to some things I learned in those classes now um, mm -hmm. because they've sort of I've matured and the lessons have matured. But um, I think it's a lot about teaching you how you think. And I don't think the university has the has the chokehold on that kind of learning, I think. Right. And that's exactly what I want to bring it back to. So you mentioned that you want to make you know, through the garden, you want to make it more accessible. I mean, I think part of what you want to do is make it more accessible. And like you also mentioned that you left Stanford with a lot of debt. And so basically all that stuff costs a lot of money. And because that seems like, like for me personally, and I've thought about this a lot, it just seems like there should be a better way, basically. So we have the technology now. Why can't we share this like high quality, like, you know, the why can't everybody have the Stanford education and everybody have the Harvard education, everybody have the Cambridge education? And is it transferable? Actually, I'm not going to make a question out of it. I mean, is it via, or do you believe that this is like a possible future and something that's, it is actually transferable? Because, you know, some of it is like you're, you said the touchy feely, we get in there, we do like how much of it, is it, is how much of it is actually transferable and how much of it is, Sorry, you just got to pay the pay the mega yeah. pay the big bucks. <laughs> I don't think that the um, I don't think what makes the experience special is fully transferable. I think you can put all the courses online and people will be able to access them and the learnings you get there from that. But like a lot of the a lot of the stuff you you get, if I'm really honest, it comes from the late night conversations with profoundly humans, humans, yeah. humans, yeah. humans being together. Humans being together. Now, do I think you can create that online? Yes, I think you can if you bring people together for conversations. But what I've been doing for the last eight years is, is trying to create ways to democratize access to learning in some way. So apprenticeships is about challenging this one-size-fits-all one system of everyone has to be academic and go to university. And if you're not academic, you're not good at exams, then there isn't a route for you. It worked for me, and I've never denied that I've been to some of the world's best universities and it was the right route for me. But that's because there wasn't even another option. And for so many people, the apprenticeship route, if it was seen as prestigious and you've got the community experience, would have been the right thing. I'm deeply passionate about that, and it's the right thing for society to have that route. But equally, I don't think education should stop when you finish at school or university. I think that people should have access to inspiring ideas and great learning and the opportunity to come together wherever they are in the world. And if you live in London like I do, you can go down to the VNA and attend a lecture or see Royal Academy and attend a talk. And you are surrounded by so much, in fact so much that you never actually access any of it. But if you live like my parents do in Lincolnshire or you live in a small town in in you know I don't know upstate New York or Wherever you are in the world, most people don't live in a cultural center and don't have access to that. And so 
my my target audience isn't the person who you know isn't necessarily the person who you know is in the university town. My my target audience with Garden is everyone else, everyone who usually feels like a second class citizen and they attend an online talk that's being filmed from the back of a hall and, and they feel that they're not in the room. And I want us to build something that makes everybody in the room. Yeah, I mean, if if you can nail that, is because and my father, who did teach at Oxford, used to say to his students in their first, yeah, like the first week onboarding or whatever he called it, just the sort of first chat. He'd tell this group of ten or twelve people who were going to read Oxford at read philosophy at Merton. Um, you're going to learn more from each other than you learn from me and the other the other professors. And the the challenge if it's a vast community is how do you make sure how do, how do you control for the the quality of the people you hang out with and I, I, the, I'm sure there is a solution but it's an important one because you can only hang out with so many people and as anyone who's been on a reddit thread <laughs> will, will know not everyone there is is worth spending that much time on but I, I think it's a very it's a very good good um, good very inspiring and challenging challenging and important goal and clearly there are lots of things that I'm involved in TED and TEDx. There's strong evidence. There's a hunger for not unconventional, you know, education learning formats outside the traditional system. And you know, the, if you compare a TED talk to you know a bog standard Cambridge lecture, you know, you didn't mention the lecture system. Not all the lectures are great, even at the top universities, by any stretch of the imagination. So, Kim, and we we were going to come back to culture, weren't we? Uh, with that, you you said let's remember. Culture. Okay, um, yeah, but we, we probably need to wrap it up. But let's just say, yeah, so you're building, just you're building your own company now, uh, basically uh, from scratch, um, and you've done it. Like you're, the timing of what you're doing is obviously post. Like, can I say post pandemic? I, I mean, Twitter, let's just date ourselves. Where are we? we're in March 2022. Okay, post pandemic. Um, I mean, this is something. So I'm like, whatever the businesses I'm involved in. I mean, this is like, this has been a big. This is a big challenge because I'm a big believer in culture and people and all this stuff. And like, you know, we've moved from like sort of being traditional office space, office based. So we go to parties, we meet up physically um, to now. And I mean, in my case, we're very multi, like all over the world. And like, how do you and that's through acquisitions and stuff. So like, how do you actually manage remote, you know, remote? Um, like if you're setting up your company as remote and I assume to you, it, it really doesn't matter if they're, once they're like 50 miles away or 10 miles away, it like doesn't really matter. Right. I mean, they're too far away. So like, how do you set it up and how do you deal with this? Cause like, I, and we've been touching on it a little bit here is like, it, you know, working in groups and like the actual physical human thing actually matters. Cause I'm going to, I'm going to say I'm old school as well. Like, I don't say you're old school, but I'm definitely old school. I believe in, uh, like human face-to-face -face interpersonal, that that makes a big, you know, that that's really important for doing anything basically. So well, I think it is important for a lot of things, yeah. but I don't think it's important for everything. And I think the last couple of years have shown us that like, actually when you're <clears throat> executing on tasks, actually a lot of the time it's more productive to not be with other people. You're much less distracted, you're much more efficient. Yeah. Um, and actually it's good for people's like, physical and mental health to be able to manage their time more effectively. I know that I have really appreciated being able to not commute to an office for, for an hour each way every day for the last two years. I've seen more of my kids. I've been able to exercise more. I've been able to take you know a nap or a meditation when I'm exhausted. Uh, my days are probably longer, but I can manage my life a bit more. And um, I'm definitely 
much more efficient. But I don't think that you can do everything remotely because I think sales and building personal relationships and um, forming those kind of trust relationships are also team like team team related like yeah similar exactly. with like being in a team. Being um, in a team. So. I think a lot of the tools can help you communicate and make decisions. We're always in Slack, we text each other, I leave voice notes, we use Loom, we use lots of different things. But we also come together. So um, the way that my co-founder and I uh, decided to, to structure this is remote first. And that means that we, we incorporate a lot of the best practices for remote companies, you know, making sure that we document stuff, making sure that we turn our cameras on, making sure that we have sort of stand-ups and stuff, so this communication but also that we come together. So at this stage, we try to come together every two to three weeks. Sometimes you know, my co-founder and I try to see each other more regularly. Um, and those sessions are more about personal relationship forming and brainstorming collaboration um, than they are about all sitting in a room and listening to presentations. I, I encourage people to go for coffees, go for walks. Exactly. That's it's personal. It's get to know the person. I mean, really, it, that's, yeah. It really is. So Richard said at the beginning that he believes that culture is about what people do together. And how a sh a shared experience. A culture is shared experience. So I think that culture is built on shared values, and values are all about how you, you know, like, and that that's all about how you live those values. So I always talk about hiring for values fit, not culture fit, because I think the problem is culture fit means like me. Um, shared experience, shared shared background, shared everything, and so with values fit, you can come from very different backgrounds, but you can have shared values. So I I care about people who want to build extraordinary things together. I care about people who are deeply curious. I care about um, having people who who are inclusive and care about belonging and welcoming. Like these are things that matter to me. Um, excellence being really important. So. I think we hire for values and then we, we describe the behaviors that uh, demonstrate those values and that's about living it. So it's about doing those things that you describe in the behaviors. And so that's why people will say, oh, the company should come up with the values. No, no, I think the founders need to come up with the values because I think the founders need to be living and breathing them every single day. Because if you don't live up to those values and can't live up to them, everything crumbles. I certainly will. Next time I say culture is about shared, shared experience, I'll say it's about shared experience and values. And I yeah. think I will, I will, I will sound wiser. <laughs> Look at a defensive views so right away. Just defense these. No, but actually, so I'm actually like involved in a in a, in a large organization that, that, and I actually totally agree. Like, so it's multinational. It's like it's more complex. It even gets it actually gets even more complicated. But I and 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 it's and I actually agree that having on the very top the shared values. And that needs to be the thing that keeps, that is our thing. That is who we are. Because then we go down and everybody, they're different ages. Cause it's also like, you may be dealing more with young people. Like we have like different, various different ages, different cultures from different places. And they could have their local thing that's okay. But, but like as a company, having that, I, I, I actually agree that, 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 that that's the way to go. Okay, we've gone far and long on this one. <laughs> and you're busy. And you're oh, busy. It's great. It's brilliant. I mean, I, I, I really appreciate you taking all this time. Uh, I just feel like we should uh, 
know, Rafa, I'll, I'll just say, but before, and Kim typically does the wrap, so I'll just say that well, I'll post a link to another interviewee that was called Michal Slavinsky, who founded a company called Mosby, which is all it was a remote first company right from this from years and years ago. And he has a lot to say about how to run companies remotely, and the, there are links to his blog and stuff like that. And that'll be useful for our listeners if you want to know more about that. There's plenty you can find out from Google, but, but one of our past interviewees was, um, was uh, founded a company which he made a feature of, and it was 10 or 15 years ago. He really started early. So I'll, I'll link to that. And um, yes, yeah, so I, I, I'd, I'd like to echo uh, Keeman's comment that this has been a longer than usual podcast, but a very interesting one and a very interesting one. And um, Keeman, do you want to do the, do the honors of the wrap up? Yeah, I mean, I just uh, basically, I'm really impressed with, uh, with what, what you're doing. And like, just personally, like I'm, I just personally, and like I hear where you're coming from and I actually this is like I actually strongly believe in all this like edu the, the education and sharing the education and democratizing the education and so basically I think there's so much to do here and I, I'm anyway I'm, I'm I think it's really cool um what you're doing and so like I, I do encourage everybody listening to to check out the garden and uh I mean I basically like what you're doing I, in terms of the wrap-up Richard I, I'm, I'm making an executive decision here I'm going short version here normally I go off and I thank literally name a whole bunch of people to help us get make this podcast I'm just gonna say thank you all of you because I thank you every single episode so thank <laughs> you you know who you are <laughs> you'll be in the show notes <laughs> it'll be in the show notes and if you liked please uh you know please like subscribe let everybody know that in the world that you love this and that uh, other people should listen to this and sophie thank you so much for your time really appreciate it great story thank you very much